this is the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess, and we're scrutinizing our way into episode number 73. Welcome to the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast, the tips, tools, and straight talk you want for pregnancy, childbirth, and bringing up baby. And now your host, Kristen Burgess. Hi, this is Kristen from naturalbirthandbabycare.com. Today we are going to talk about a topic that I get asked about quite a bit, and I get asked this by both podcast listeners, I get asked by newsletter readers, I get asked by my mama baby birthing students, and so I wanted to do something where I really drilled down into this topic and dug into it. So today we're going to talk about what it means, or or what your RH status means and what that means for your pregnancy, and we're going to talk about Rogam and the choices that come along with that. Before we jump into that, I wanted to remind you, if you haven't had a chance to take a look at it and you are listening to this before the end of June 2015 when we're recording it, the Healthy Wealthy Wise giveaway is going on right now. I'm really thrilled to have three things featured in that giveaway. I've got a natural birth cheat sheet, the nap time crib sheet, which covers you know things for baby sleep, and I've got a work at home mom schedule blueprint up there because I often get asked, Kristen, how do you do it? And sometimes I feel like I don't really do it very well, but I think I'm getting a handle on on how to handle uh, life, babies, homestead, home business, all of that sort of thing. So that's in there to help those moms. Plus, you know, I've got three things in there, but there are literally hundreds of other freebie downloads in there. There's some webinars and things that you can sign up for free about mom issues, but also covering all kinds of things from personal development, uh, home business development, health, well-being, all of that sort of stuff. So you can just go through and pick and choose what appeals to you. You can head over to birthbabylife.com slash hww birthbabylife.com slash hww to jump into that and uh, and <laughs> I'm getting dinked here everywhere, ladies. I'm sorry. Um, anyways, to jump into that giveaway, so that again is birthbabylife.com slash HWW. The other thing that I wanted to let you know, and if you're on the newsletter list, then you already know this. If you're not on the newsletter list, please head over to trustbirth101.com. That's trustbirth101.com and jump on the list so that you'll get these announcements. But I am really excited to share that I'm working on a revision of Mama Baby Birthing, which is my online childbirth class series. I started Mama Baby Birthing two and a half years ago now, and one of the ways that I am committed to my students, even to you who are listening to my podcast, to you who are reading the newsletters, who are uh, on the website, I'm always doing continuing education. And so the fundamentals of natural birth and, and teaching online birthing education haven't really changed, but we're always learning so many new things. And for instance, one of the things that we've really learned a lot about recently is we have learned about how hormones influence birth. And so things like that, I want to incorporate all of that into mama baby birthing. And of course, I've now been teaching for two years, so I've gotten a lot more I've gotten a lot more feedback from students and I really know what what you want. And then I've got a bigger subscriber base now. The podcast, you listeners on the podcast are really wonderful. You like to let me know what's on your minds and what you want to hear. So I've got more people to ask. So I'm actually conducting a survey right now to find out what you want to see in Mama Baby Birthing. And I would love to have your responses. If you could just take a minute, there's only one question that's required. Uh, There's a few other extra extra questions and obviously I would love to have you fill those out but there's one big question and if you could hop over there and let me know what your biggest childbirth question is because that's what my big question is is what's your biggest question then I would really appreciate it because that helps me know that I'm making this course what you need and what other mamas need so that we have healthier babies and happier mamas and happier families, which is really, that's my goal in life, obviously starting with my own family, but then moving out to your family. And I want to make sure that I'm meeting those needs and I'm giving you what you want and maybe even helping you find what you haven't been able to find anywhere else. So if you head over to birthbabylife.com survey, 
Again, that's birthbabylife.com slash survey. That will redirect you to the survey over at SurveyMonkey. You can take, you know, two minutes to fill that out. It would make such a huge difference to me and be so helpful to me. And I really, really would appreciate that. And I thank you for taking a few minutes out of your busy day to help me out. Now with that, let's go ahead and jump into today's podcast, which again, we're going to talk about RH and pregnancy. And for those of you moms who aren't RH negative, this this isn't going to be such a big episode, but if you are RH negative, this is probably something that has really weighed on your mind. It may be something that you never even gave a thought before you were pregnant, but suddenly it becomes very important. So let's start with the basics. And the basics is, or the basics are, perhaps, but the the most important thing to answer first off is what is RH status? So RH is, it's a factor in your blood. So you probably know, maybe you remember from your high school biology classes, that we have different blood types. So either A, either A, B, O, or AB. That's one AB together. So you can either be just A, just B, you can be AB, or you can be O. So those are the four main blood types. And then there are all kinds of other little factors that go into our blood and make our blood unique. And one of those is the RH factor. And RH is named for the rhesus monkey who was used as a guinea pig kind of for figuring out a lot of this blood stuff along the way. If you're RH negative, it means that your body uh, lacks that RH factor and therefore produces antigens towards the RH factor. So that's that's what it is on just like a very basic biology level. Now, if you're RH negative, why, you might ask, so why does this matter so much during pregnancy? And we'll go into this in more in more detail. But it does matter because if your baby is RH If your baby is RH positive, I have to make sure I say this right. If your baby is RH positive and you're RH negative and your body has produced antibodies towards RH, towards the RH factor, so you've got RH antigen in your body and antibodies are being produced, then it's possible that it could impact your baby because your baby's blood cells could possibly be attacked by this. That's why it matters. Now, if you're RH negative, the big thing to figure out first is what blood type is your husband or what blood type is baby's daddy because that's going to have a major influence on what the possibility for your baby's blood type is. So if you are RH negative and baby's daddy is RH negative, then your baby is going to be RH negative. There's something like a one in a million or one in a billion chance or something that there could be a genetic variation that would produce a baby who's RH positive, but as it's very, very rare. So if you are both RH negative, then really all of this episode may be of interest to you, but it doesn't really matter very much. If baby's dad is RH positive, it it becomes a slightly it becomes a different situation. Now there's a possibility that an RH positive daddy and an RH negative mom can still have RH negative babies, I know, because I have quite a few of them. But what it, what there is is an RH positive person is either homozygous or heterozygous for their RH genotype. So homozygous means that they're RH positive, RH positive. Heterozygous means they're RH positive, RH negative. So there's that recessive RH negative is in there. And if that is the case, then there's a 50% chance that they could have an RH negative baby. Now, if if baby's daddy is uh, homozygous, so if it's RH positive, RH positive, your baby will be RH positive. All your babies will be RH positive. But if dad is heterozygous, again, there's a 50-50 chance that you guys will have an RH positive or an RH negative baby. Um, I don't know. My oldest kids, some of you know my oldest kids, Scott has adopted them, but he's not their biological dad. And I'm not sure if their biological dad was homozygous or heterozygous, but I suspect that he was homozygous because all three of them are RH positive. However, we are absolutely certain that Scott is heterozygous because uh, out of the four babies that we've had together, three of them are RH negative, which is 
that's that's kind of interesting because that's actually 75% rather than 50%. We weren't sure about Sadie at first, and I'm actually going to talk a little bit more about that later in the podcast, but we do know for, for a fact now that she is also RH negative. So Galen, Honor, and Sadie are all RH negative, and Corwin is our only RH positive one out of the kids that are biologically Scots, though he has adopted the big kids, so they're all his. All right, anyways, let's move on. So before we move on to talk more in detail about why RH status matters and and what all is going on with that, I want to point out that this isn't just RH, that sensitization can happen in other ways. And RH is what we hear about the most, but I feel like it's important to point this out just for your general knowledge and to acknowledge the moms who are maybe maybe going through this with a different thing because I don't think that they often get get mentioned. But there are other sensitizations that can occur because there are other blood factors. In fact, ABO incompatibility could possibly be a thing. It's most commonly an issue for moms who are blood type O and who have a baby of another blood type. Uh, but it, it tends to be more minor, the ABO, though it can be something that needs to be watched. But it does tend to be more minor. And ABO incompali- incompatibility, excuse me, it may be slightly protective against RH sensitization, which is what we're talking about on this call. Uh, and that research that that showed that was done by Woodrow in 1970, and Anne Fry mentions it in her book, Understanding Diagnostic Tests for the Childbearing Year. And I'm actually going to read you a couple nice quotes from her book in a minute, but she pointed that out, and I just thought that was really interesting, that moms who have uh, a slight ABO incompatibility or sensitization are greatly protected from RH sensitization. That's just kind of fascinating for me, and I won't I won't ruminate on that right now, but it's just something to know because I thought it was interesting. But there are also other factors that are minor factors like RH. Uh, Kel is a big one. Some moms have Kel sensitization. Some moms have what's called Duffy sensitization. And there are some others. Most of these are minor. In fact, a lot of RH sensitization is also minor. ABO, like I said, is usually considered minor. The big ones that tend to cause problems for babies is there's one Kel variant one rhesus, that's RH, one rhesus variant, and there are two what are called what's called the private factor, private variants, are the most problematic for babies. And if that if this is what's going on with you, then you're gonna have a specialist who who helps you figure that out. So this can be I mean, so this can be an issue beyond that. And definitely, if you're worried about this sort of thing, this is, and we, again, we'll talk more about getting support, but this is the time to bring in somebody who, who has some expert level knowledge on it. Now, let's talk a little bit more about why sensitization matters in a little bit more detail and, and the implications of that for you and for your baby. So sensitization to define exactly what sensitization is, this is a this is a quote from Understanding Diagnostic Tests in the Childbearing Year. It's the seventh edition by Anne Fry, uh, and I think the publication date is 2007. So sensitization refers to an intrinsic or acquired antibody response that occurs when blood cells with a certain factor enter the body of a person whose blood cells do not have that factor. And I think I thought that that statement was pretty well laid out, but it does have a little bit of that medical ease in it too. So an intrinsic or acquired antibody response means that either the antibody response was there, it's just been there, it's part of the normal package, or acquired means that it was jump-started by something. And of course, an antibody response means that your body goes on the attack. It goes on the alert to protect your body. So an antibody response is usually a positive thing, but there are times, as we know, that it can cause trouble. Like for those of you who have really bad allergies, that's often an overactive antibody response. And some people have a life-threatening allergic reaction, which is just where the body responds really violently and it becomes life-threatening. And then this, of course, is an antibody response in response to something from outside the body coming in. And that's the reason why it matters, because for our baby's body... Um, Our body sees baby's blood type as a problem, and then it sends out antibodies, which have the possibility of crossing to baby through the placenta and attacking baby's own blood supply. And that's where the big problem comes in. That's the rub. 
Um, so Fry goes on to explain in her book that when the mom and baby's blood mix, antibodies are eventually formed. And at first, it's like a lower tier antibody, but then it moves into IgG antibodies, which can destroy fetal red blood cells. So that's the reason why this is a big deal for people. And it can cause, uh, it can be minor, it can cause anemia in the baby that is not ideal, but but relatively minor. And it can also be major even to the point of causing stillbirth. So that's why this is a topic that we want to talk about and that we want to know about. It is a touchy topic. It's not common. Sensitization isn't common. But of course, I say that when you're the one in whatever that becomes sensitized, it feels very common. But it is not statistically or based on population very common. And a gentle pregnancy and birth means that possibly there's really no real risk of this. Other things may be protective, like I mentioned already, the ABO status. And what we are doing to mothers now may actually increase risk. So modern obstetric care may actually increase the risk of sensitization. And we will talk more about that as we go through the podcast and dig into this. Treatment for it involves uh, injection with what's called anti-D because the, uh, the RH factor is actually, it gets even more complex and even more granular than I explained to you. So there, you, you heard me mention that certain variants cause more problems than others. So uh, the D variant is one of those and there are others and, and they have different letters like the D is a capital D and that's different. And so there are other variants like the lowercase C and the lowercase E, et cetera, et cetera. So there are different variants that are going on and the injection that they give is called anti-D because it is an antibody for the RHD variant. And, and all of that gets really scientific and really complex. So I'm going to keep it a level up from that deep complexity because I feel like we're already pretty complex. But just know that when they say anti-D, it's referring to, um, to the RH factor and the D variant, which is what is of concern to most moms. And that in, it's given in an injection, and it, it is considered very effective. We'll come back to it, but I do want to say that treatment is effective. It is a human blood product, so that's something to consider, and that's why it makes it touchy for a lot of, for a lot of women. Um, many people remember babies lost. Uh, I have a midwife. She's one of my professors, and she talks about being able to remember when when there would be families where they would have a healthy baby first, and then they would have their second and third baby would be stillborn, and then they'd have another healthy baby, and then another stillborn baby, and just it was kind of a mystery as to why this was happening. And now we know it was because those babies were, the first baby was fine. We'll talk too about that. Why is the first baby usually okay, but subsequent babies may be affected? Um, and then, then they, the mom had RH positive babies for the stillbirths and then happened to have an RH negative baby who made it. Uh, and so it was just, you know, you can imagine that was devastating to families. It's devastating to lose a child. It's devastating to have a stillbirth. And a lot of people can still remember that. And so when the anti-D injection was developed, it was a way to stop that and therefore, uh, I mean, people saw it as a good thing, and we'll talk more about it. I do think that it's a good thing, just with some caveats. So in the end, I think this is a personal decision, and I'm giving you information today that can help you think about it, but this is a personal decision, and what choice you make may not be my choice, and I think you deserve to have information, but in the end, I want you to make the decision that's right for you and right for your family, and and because it requires a level of responsibility, so it depends on you know, what you feel like your responsibility to your baby is and to your future babies, because that's really who is in question when we talk about uh, RH status and all of that. So how does sensitization happen? How, how does that blood mix initially? Because if you know anything about maternal fetal circulation, which some of you know and some of you don't, so maternal fetal circulation, the blood between mom and baby never mixes. Okay, the uterus forms what's known as the lake of blood, and actually it's, 
It's uh, stuff from the placenta. It kind of actually erodes away vessels in the uterus so that the blood is just kind of there freely and it forms kind of a lake that the placenta draws from. But there are membranes that separate the actual placenta and the fetal blood supply. All the blood in the placenta is the baby's blood from the maternal blood supply, so from your blood, which is all the blood in the uterus, and just nutrients and obviously antibodies, some toxins and other things are, they pass through that placental barrier into the placenta. So in a normal pregnancy, that blood never mixes, so fetal blood is never in mom's blood to to send off this antibody response or to trigger this antibody response. That's what I want to say. So the question is, is how, how does this sensitization happen in a pregnancy? And actually the first two ways that sensitization happen are not dependent on, on pregnancy. So the first is an incorrect blood transfusion. So if you needed blood transfused and you were given blood from an RH positive individual rather than an RH negative individual, then there, there could be sensitization. So if one needs a blood transfusion after an accident or after a surgery or something, usually a lot of care is taken to make sure that RH negative blood is matched up with somebody who needs, uh, with the person who needs the blood if they're RH negative. And, and actually they try and match up any way around it, perfect blood types if possible. But in the event that there's an incorrect match or there's an emergency situation, then that could cause sensitization. And then something else that can cause sensitization is IV drug use with shared needles. So usually this is recreational drug use where people are, are using the same needle and if you end up with blood mixed from another person, that could possibly cause sensitization. Another thing that causes sensitization could be miscarriage when you lose a baby. Uh, abortion also uh, possibly more likely during abortion because it's, it's a more violent procedure than just a natural miscarriage. Though in a miscarriage, if there's a DNC where anything surgical is going on, there's a greatly increased chance of sensitization. Now, having said that, for both of these cases, sensitization chances are low before around 28 weeks because the fetal blood volume is very low. Um, so when the fetal blood volume is lower, there's less of a chance that sensitization is going to occur. But it does happen, and I've actually heard from moms who have had this happen to them. So it's something to keep in mind. And, and there is actually, uh, if you have a miscarriage, and and actually I, I believe after abortion, but anyways, they they offer a prophylactic dose of, uh, of Rogam or Anti-D, which it actually has a name that indicates that it's kind of a mini dosage for for after, you know, for after a mom has a miscarriage. So that's something that you could ask for if you wanted to, you know, if if you felt strongly about that. And I would certainly I would say ask for it if you have to have a DNC or any sort of surgical intervention, anything but a very natural miscarriage. Certainly I would say ask for it. It it might be more debatable after a natural miscarriage. And we'll talk about some points that might help you make that decision if you find yourself in that situation. And if you do, my heart hurts for you. But um but it's good to know that information. Okay, injury or blow to the abdomen during pregnancy, something that, that disturbs the placental bed, could cause mixing in theory. It's very rare for that to happen because in healthy women with a healthy placenta, um, things are just very robust and resilient in there. But it is a possibility. Slight placental abruption could cause this. So if you happen to know that there's been a slight abruption during your pregnancy, sometimes that sort of thing's picked up on ultrasound, or if you're having a little bit of bleeding that resolves, that could cause sensitization. Any sort of invasive procedure could greatly increase the risk of sensitization. So especially something like an amniocentesis or CVS, chorionic villus sampling, that increases the risk of sensitization. And any clinical procedures um, that might be harsher. The big one that's usually mentioned is external version, which is a procedure that they do from the outside to try and rotate a breech baby into the vertex or head down position. And 
it, it, it would have to be really, really, I guess, violent again for that to cause problems. So in, in her book, Anne Fry notes that this is very rare and that extreme pressure would have to be exerted. So there's some debate about external version for a lot of different reasons, but an experienced care provider who's going to be gentle about it, uh, especially earlier in the third trimester, 32, 34 weeks around that point, it's usually thought to be pretty gentle. And uh, as Fry notes, the risks are pretty low, but it is something to keep in mind. And then the other point when sensitization becomes a possible big issue is during birth, like when the placenta is detaching especially. I, I, this is the theory, we don't have proof of it, but I really think that, that cord clamping may have something to do with it. The more and more I read about it, the more and more uh, I feel like this is probably an issue. And again, I'm going to quote from Fry from Understanding Diagnostic Tests in the Childbearing Year because she just does a really good job of, uh, of taking the clinical knowledge and distilling it in a way that's easy to understand for even a layperson. So clamping the cord before placental transfusion is complete causes the placenta to remain engorged with fetal blood, making it more rigid and hindering detachment and descent while increasing the chance of blood mixing. So I, I love that she causes it, calls it, excuse me, she calls it placental transfusion because that's what's going on is a blood transfusion from the placenta to your baby. We will call it like it is. That is necessary blood for your baby. Uh, but when we clamp the cord before that happens, when we clamp the cord before the cord has stopped pulsing, so all of that blood is transferred into baby, then all that blood backs up in the placenta. And there is a very real possibility that that backup with sudden cutoff of circulation and that engorged placenta, there is going to be some blood forced through into places where it's not supposed to be. And then, of course, any sort of harsh birth with lots of interventions or anything like that, uh, I would guess that surgical birth cesarean probably increases that risk of blood mixing. So those are things to really keep in mind when you're thinking about your birth experience and if, for instance, some emergency intervention is needed, uh, how you might might change your plans after birth to go along with what are possible risks that go along with a with a birth that increases the chances of the blood mixing. Okay, so why why does this sensitization, so the pregnancy that I'm sensitized in, say I was sensitized during pregnancy, which as we've talked about is pretty rare, most sensitization occurs during birth. Um, but if I am sensitized during pregnancy, why doesn't it affect this baby? That's a question that a lot of moms have. Um, so initially what happens when, when the blood mixes is that your body creates what's called IgM antibodies, which are kind of a lower tier, less aggressive antibody. They don't, they don't cross the placenta. Um, and the primary response takes a while to develop. So this antibody response takes a while to develop, 5 to 16 weeks. So really, the, the response is very low-key, doesn't cross the placenta, takes a long time to, to develop. Now, after that response has, has developed, um, more aggressive antibodies, the IgG levels, rise. And those are the ones that kind of remember forever, so to speak. So when a subsequent baby comes along, those antibodies are already there in full production, and they remember the offending party, which in this case is the blood that has the Rh factor in it, and and they attack. So that's why most of the time, if you become sensitized during a pregnancy, it won't impact the baby that you're pregnant with at this time, but it does impact future babies. And that's why when we're talking about this, we're making decisions for future babies. And if you... If you're sure that you're not going to have any more babies, then it's something that you really don't need to worry about. But if you're not sure, or if there's a possibility that there may be more babies, or you are sure that there may be more babies, then it's definitely something that you want to consider. Now, some moms are worried about what, uh, what if I'm already sensitized? How would I know that? And there is a test that you can have done. The Coombs tests are in a C-O-O-M-B-S. Those tests 
test for sensitization and indirect Coombs is what's usually done. It's a simple blood test done on mom and it just detects your antibody levels. So that can be done like if you're worried that you were sensitized during birth and you didn't get Rogam or, or if you're worried for whatever reason that you may have become sensitized or perhaps that it didn't work. And often with a prenatal workup, this is done routinely. I actually should have said way back at the beginning of the podcast when we first started talking, forgive me for not mentioning it, but if, even if you don't know your your blood type or your RH factor, many of us don't before we become pregnant, finding that out is part of the routine prenatal workup, the routine p- prenatal blood work that's done probably uh, at your first appointment or two during your pregnancy. And if you're having an unassisted birth, you may not choose to have this done, but you could always uh, even ask your family practitioner, your general practitioner to order a prenatal blood workup for you and find out your blood type just so that you're more informed about it. And I I personally do think that this is something that you would want to know. So that's up to you. And one other option is to do what's called an Eldon card, which it's E-L-D-O-N, Eldon card. You can do this for baby two, um, but you can order an Eldon card and and that will help you not only know your RH type, but also your ABO type. So that might be an option too for you ladies who are thinking about an unassisted pregnancy or an unassisted birth. But if you weren't sure about the Eldon card results, some of them are very clear and some of them are not so clear. If you weren't sure about them, then then you might want to see if you could get your family doctor to, or even a chiropractor or somebody who has laboratory privileges to order those labs for you just so that you know for sure. Okay, so before we jump into Rogam and all that goes with that, let's talk quickly about preventing sensitization. What can we do to prevent sensitization? And I've touched on that slightly because we know that mom and baby's blood is not supposed to mix. And so outside of the general, uh, hopefully you don't ever need a blood transfusion, but if you do let them know your blood type um, and hopefully you're not doing any sort of recreational drugs for that to be an impactor. So let's think about what can we do during our pregnancies. The biggest thing is diet. If you have been listening to this podcast at all, you know that I am really big on healthy pregnancy diet because healthy pregnancy diet helps everything including strengthening the integrity of the uterus, of the uterine walls, of the uterine vessels, of the placental barrier, of the placenta. It just, it helps everything. So it's very important. And specifically, vitamin C is thought to be very helpful um, in just protecting against that. So eating lots of vitamin C rich foods is a good idea. Eliminating fluoride, this was actually something that I, I hadn't heard before, but this was in uh, Anne Fry's write-up about it. And so eliminating fluoride may possibly be helpful because fluoride is thought to disrupt collagen development, and therefore it, uh, it impacts the elasticity and the integrity of the placenta and could possibly mess up that barrier. So don't drink fluorinated water or use fluorinated toothpaste. You know, go um, look into your water brands that are available maybe in Bywater or if you have access to well water that's been tested to be clean, then you may want to use that instead of using a fluoridated water supply. Magnesium powder is sought to be helpful. That's It's looking more and more like magnesium is very helpful throughout pregnancy and birth. So for many reasons, I, I've actually been recommending that to my mama baby birthing students for lots of other issues, but it's also supposed to be helpful for this. Kelp is, is also possibly helpful, very nourishing to the placenta. The sea greens are just very nutrient-dense and helpful. Um, and Fry also had a couple of recommendations that I've not seen elsewhere Uh, In addition to the fluoride, one was activated charcoal just in small amounts for removing toxins and an elderflower infusion, which just helps to reduce inflammation and keep all of the vessels uh, in their integrity where they're supposed to be. And so there's no inflammation going on that's causing pressure. Uh, And if you're more interested in those two things, she only mentions them briefly. She doesn't go into a lot of detail, but they're on page 142 of Understanding Diagnostic Tests. Then, of course, I think that the, the biggest thing, which because we said that most sensitization is going to happen during birth, is having a gentle birth. So have a gentle birth experience. 
decline interventions, work with your baby, uh, decline things like episiotomy, decline vaginal exams, um, try and keep things as quiet and as low key as you can so that you're able to work with your baby. You're able to listen to what your baby and your body need and move with them. Some women say, I don't know what that means, Kristen. And if you don't, that I mean, that's where getting childbirth skills and prepared birth helps. And definitely check out Mama Baby Birthing. Uh, it's at mamababybirthing.com, M-A-M-A. Uh, babybirthing.com because really having a gentle birth and also uh, having all those hormones that are protective of birth, they have a big impact on what happens, especially in the third stage. That's when the placenta is being born. Those hormones have a huge impact on the safety of that and on what's going to happen with all the blood supply in the placenta. So really safeguarding your birth is going to be a big thing, if at all possible. Leave the placenta attached to baby. When the placenta is born on its own, you can push it out or if it's stubborn. I mean, Sadie's placenta was, she had a big placenta and it was stubborn. It did not want to come. But as soon as I got up into a squatting position, her placenta was born with no problem from there on out. So some people will say, or or some care providers might say, oh, the placenta just didn't want to come. But if that's the case, ask somebody to help you squat before they go pulling and tugging on the placenta because it may just fall out. Sadie's pretty much literally just fell out at that point. And obviously that's anecdotal, but it's something to keep in mind. Okay, so let's keep birth gentle and especially let's keep that third stage gentle. Let the baby get all the blood that he or she needs from the placenta and then let it come on its own. Let's jump into Rogam now. So Rogam is is a brand name for anti-D. It's the most common brand name, at least in the United States. Uh, other brand names are Rogam, Bayro, and Winro. Those are some names. But any anti-D, uh, anti-D immunoglobulin, I think is how it's pronounced, that's talking about the same thing. But Rogam is the brand name that most of us have heard. Before we jump into kind of the controversial aspects about this and some considerations to have with it, I do want to let you know that All anti-D injections are thimerosal and preservative-free now. This was not the case in the past. Okay, Rogam did used to have thimerosal or mercury as a preservative. However, now they are all preservative-free. So that that concern with Rogam is no longer a concern. Uh, But... There are some other concerns. Rogam is considered controversial. It is a human blood product. So it is it is created by microfiltering um, the, the blood of an RH sensitized person. So it is a blood product. It is microfiltered for purity, etc., etc. But but I mean, there, and that for some of you is going to be a, a stop right there because for some, some religions are not okay with human blood products. And some people just ethically kind of feel a little bit worried about that. So if that's the case for you, then that's something that you need to know. But for, for others, that's not so big a deal, but they may have other worries. But it is important to know. And it, I don't think that there has ever been a case of any sort of cross-contamination with Rogam. It is carefully filtered, but it is something to keep in mind that it's a blood product and it could bring other bloodborne stuff with it, potentially. It is not completely understood how this works. It prevents antibody response on some level. Uh, We know that. It may mask antibody sites by kind of filling in and masquerading. And it may also stop antibody production in some way, but we don't completely understand how it works. Now, the big things about it are no studies have been done to decide who should receive anti-D. It's just simply given to everyone. Now, if you will remember when I talked about the possible consequences and, and the memories that are there, I mean, we're thinking about families who lost their babies to stillbirth and the devastation that came with that. And so, of course, we can understand the blanket. Let's give this to everybody because we want to prevent that from ever happening. We want to prevent any possibility of that from happening. And I think that that's a noble cause, um, though sometimes we find that that trying to prevent for everybody may not have the may not be completely side effect free like we think it does. 
And also when we think about rogam, the reality is, and this is research from uh, from Wickham, Sarah Wickham in 2001, over 90% of women do not become sensitized. And research shows that rogam is not necessary to prevent sensitization for most women. So over 90% of women who give birth to an RH positive baby will not become sensitized, even if they don't have rogam. So that's something to consider. So uh, it's a blanket recommendation to protect 10% of moms and babies or under 10% of moms and babies when over 90% of them don't need it. Now, why might that be an issue? Really, we don't we don't know the long-term effects of Rogam on the immune system because we are injecting a low dose of antibody in. We don't know how that impacts your immune system, mom, and we especially don't know how that might affect a fetal immune system if it's still forming. So the rogam given after birth is probably not going to have much effect on the baby, but a prophylactic dose or a preventative dose is often given at 28 weeks pregnancy. And this, this tends to be the most controversial dose. And we don't know, does that prophylactic dose impact baby in some way? Could it cause placental changes? That's a big question. We know that sensitization, if mom is sensitized and then she gets pregnant with an RH positive baby, we know that the antibodies cause changes in the placenta. So does Rogam cause changes in the placenta or does anti-D? Uh, we really aren't sure about that or not. And could it impact future childbearing? Could this have impact, say, if you're pregnant with a daughter and get Rogam? Could it have an impact on her baby? Could it have an impact for her reproductive health? These are questions that we don't know the answer to. And so they're questions that we should be asking when we consider giving 100% of moms prophylactic doses of, uh, of Rogam or of anti-D. It's something to think about. Studies also show that what's quote, called quote-unquote passive immunity may not last as long as thought. So when you are given Rogam at 28 weeks, it's thought that the passive immunity that you acquire, that means you didn't have to actually come in contact with that blood to become actively, uh, develop active immunization against it. So you got it passively. It's kind of like the theory behind how vaccination works. Um, but it's thought that it lasts about 12 weeks, which is why it's given at 28 weeks, because it's thought to protect until birth when you'll get another dose. And studies show that maybe that passive immunity doesn't last as long as, as, um, as we thought. It may not last up until that point. And then another problem with passive, immu of passive immunity excuse me, is that theoretically it may make a woman later more susceptible to, to becoming sensitized. So they think that a low level may, if there's another event that happens that could cause sensitization, such as a harsh birth, that low level of antibody in the mom's system combined with the blood from the baby that mixes may end up triggering a stronger reaction uh, and create a bigger chance of sensitization than there was before. And uh, there's been not a ton of research into that. There's not really any evidence-based research for it. It's just theoretical. Um, and the, the work Murray and company in the 80s and Moyes in 2005, they've done some work on this theory, but it, it hasn't been experimented on or, or documented exhaustively. It's just something to keep in mind. Another thing to keep in mind is that women have to be sensitized to produce Rogam. So we're forcing a sensitization on other human beings. And maybe there's some ethical issues with that. Now, it's not, it's not coerced. People volunteer for this. It probably is reimbursed. Um, but I think that a lot of people who volunteer for it, they may remember what was going on. And so they're doing it from a goodwill uh, perspective, even if they're also being reimbursed for it. But we have to think, you know about the ethics of it. And that's something that some people think about. Is it ethical to force other people to be sensitized? And we aren't, maybe aren't sure how that impacts them and their life in order to be able to process the rogam. So people, you know, people will often sacrifice for the good of other people. So that could be a moot point, but it could be something that we want to think about. Rogam kind of gives a false sense of security 
We think if we give the injection, then everything's going to be okay. And if you go look around on the internet some, you'll find out that that's not always the case. It can and does fail sometimes. And as we've seen from that, uh, from the work of Murray and Moyes and companies, that it's possible that maybe it's increasing that chance of sensitization in some cases. Another big problem with Rogam is that it assumes that birth for an RH negative mother is flawed. And that, that phraseology um, really stood out to me. And again, that, that, was from, that wasn't from Wickham. That was from Fry again. Uh, and I, that just really kind of stopped me in my tracks to think about it because it's actually something that I've thought about because I believe in birth. Uh, I believe in pregnancy. And so then there's this wild card RH thing going on that kind of requires intervention. And, and what's that about? So I really liked it that she tackled that head on in her research. And so it, it's there's that assumption that the birth is flawed, that there's something wrong. But the reality is, is as you've seen from what I've talked about, that natural birth and gentle pregnancy are very protective and that it's major interventions that really create the risk. Now, even if you've had a gentle birth, you may decide to go ahead and have Rogam anyways. And I will be honest with you ladies, after my RH positive babies, I haven't had it nearing pregnancy, but after birth, I've chosen to have it with each of them. And Sadie, we were not sure. So I went ahead and had it after her too. Um, but so when would one consider having Rogam? As I've already mentioned, it's given as a prophylactic dose at 28 weeks. That's recommended for all RH negative moms. That's the recommendation. Um, what would other indications be after a traumatic event, like after a bad fall, after a car accident? Like if I were pregnant and in a car accident, I would go and request Rogam from the hospital. That, that's just what I would do. Postpartum, like we've talked about, uh, especially if you have a surgical birth or if you have a lot of intervention in your birth. But I think that all of my births have been pretty good and pretty gentle. And if I've had an RH, neg or RH positive baby, I've chosen to have it. So postpartum is a time that you might think about. Uh, if you've had a miscarriage or an ectopic pregnancy, that's another time to consider it. Anytime any invasive procedure is done, like an amnio or... Um, or CVS, or aversion, or anything like that that we've talked about. That would be another time to consider having Rogam. Now, how do we know what baby's blood type is? That might be a question that you might be asking. And usually, we find out after birth, though you can find out before birth. So if, if you wanted to know before birth, the best way to find out, and just very recent, and I'm talking like the last five, six, seven years, this is very new, um, is fetal genotyping. You've probably heard of fetal genotyping because it's it's used for other purposes too. It's the one that a blood test on mom can tell you what baby's gender is and it also tells you about Down syndrome risks and other things like that. Uh, and it has various brand names for that. But a similar procedure can be used to find out RH status. And uh, so it's RH genotyping. And that's a simple blood test from you. I say simple, but it's like four vials of blood. And it's very accurate. It also does reveal the gender of your baby. So that's something to keep in mind too. Uh, but it's non-invasive to baby. And it's considered something like 99.7 or 99.8% accurate. So extremely accurate. Uh, uh, also, amniocentesis or CVS, though those increase the risk of sensitization, those are also going to tell you um, baby's, baby's genotype. So pre-birth, pre in the prenatal period, that's how you can find out. And we actually had this done with Honor with our fifth baby. I didn't have it done with Corwin and Sadie because I didn't want to know their genders. Um, though I kind of wish I'd had it done with Sadie now because of all the mix-up after birth. But Anyways, it, it was very simple, and it was kind of nice to know that we didn't need to worry about Rogam, and it was verified after birth. Now, how do you verify after birth? The most common way is cord blood collection, and yes, the cord blood can still be collected, at least enough to do this. Even after the, the placenta has, has uh, transfused all of its blood to the baby, and the cord has stopped pulsing, so that can still happen, and that can be sent to the lab to test, or you can put droplets on an Eldon card at home to find out. And sometimes those Eldon cards are really clear. Sometimes they're hard to read. Then direct, direct blood collection is, of course, the other option. And this is what we ended up having to do with Sadie, because we did try and do an Eldon card, but unlike Cassidy also had an Eldon card done. 
But unlike with Cassidy, it wasn't really very clear. Um, and they thought that she was RH positive, uh, but it also looked like it could be RH negative. And, we, and like I said earlier, we went ahead and got the Rogam anyways. But I really wanted to know because I feel like it's important to her uh, as, a, as a woman to know what her blood type is. Uh, so we went ahead and had had her blood tested directly, which was a heel stick, which wasn't very much fun for her. Or actually, I don't think that one was a heel stick. I think she made it. She did it right from her arm. So the just the newborn, the PKU test was a heel stick. But yes, so I think it was right from her arm, and I was just amazed that the nurse was able to do that. But she did a really good job with it. Sadie didn't enjoy it, but. It only took a couple of minutes, and we know for a fact that she is O negative, and that's a good thing to know. So that's how you can know baby's blood type. And if you uh, are going to get the Rogam postpartum, then I would definitely recommend that you ask to have baby's blood typed. You have about a 72-hour window after you give birth to get the injection. So baby's blood can be typed in the lab. Uh, even if you have a home birth, it can be sent to the lab, and then you'll know do you need Rogam or not. Now, like I said, I think that the decision to make that is your decision. I've given you a lot of information, and we're, we're running really long on this podcast, and I've shared some of my thoughts. So hopefully that gives you a place to think about your decision, and just I'll restate it because I know that so many people want to know. My decision has been to decline prenatal Rogam and to have it postpartum if I have an RH-positive baby. If I were in a car accident or needed some sort of intervention or something like that, I would go ask for Rogam just because to me it's important to, because we might have another baby, you know, and I want to make sure that he or she is safe. But that's my decision and it may not be your decision. So that's something to think about. And then, of course, I try to be really conscious, again, with diet and all of that stuff. Now, if you're having a sensitized pregnancy, real quick, uh, or if you think you may be sensitized, I highly recommend that you find a maternal fetal medicine practitioner or a perinatologist is another name for them, who is experienced or who at least can consult with you uh, so that you guys can watch over your baby and make sure that things look good. And then another thing, uh, another place to find support is Baby Center has a group for moms of sensitized pregnancies. And I really don't agree with a lot of what Baby Center puts out. Um, and I think that it's ridiculous that their natural birth information outranks mine in the search engines. That's kind of like a slap in the face to me because I'm really trying to be helpful and I feel like they're really only trying to give lip service. But I do feel like they have some resources that are helpful and this is one of them. So that group, and maybe it's just because of their sheer size, so more moms are there, but that group is very knowledgeable and especially... Um, if you have anything going on with any of the other variations that we talked about, like Kel, uh, a Kel sensitization or anything like that, that group covers them all. So if you're worried, if you're concerned, if you know that you're going to go through a sensitized pregnancy, then you can find that in the in the baby center group boards. Um, and that I think that's going to be a good resource for you and, and help you talk to other moms who are going through it and find out what, what's going on with their babies and what standards of care are best and all of that sort of thing. Okay, so this is a complex topic. It's one that I've put off for a while because it can be so heavy, but it is one that I wanted to let you know about. And hopefully this is giving you food for thought and information so that you can make the right choice for you and your baby. Having said that, please also remember that uh, that I would love to hear your feedback on the survey as we're getting ready for the Mama Baby Birthing 2.0 launch. And you can you can go answer the survey. It'll take you just a couple minutes at birthbabylife.com slash survey. That would be really helpful. Thank you. And I will look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Birth, Baby and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess. For great resources and tons more info, visit www.birthbabylife.com. Visit www.birthbabylife.com.